0: We often think of the Constitution being completed once it was signed in September of 1787. But nothing could be farther from the truth. Signing the Constitution was simply the end of the beginning. The true contest occurred in the state ratification conventions, which determined whether or not what we now call the Constitution would actually be the Constitution. No state was that contest more heated or more critical than in Virginia. With me to discuss the Virginia, Virginia's debate over the Constitution is Lori Glover. She is author, most recently, of The Fate of the Revolution, Virginians Debate the Constitution. The Francis Bannon S.J., Professor of History at St. Louis University. She is most recently authored, uh, most recently authored before the fate of the Revolution, The Founders as Fathers, which you can dis- listen to her discuss on Episode 20 of this podcast. Lori, thanks for being with us again.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me back.
0: So let's um, you begin with a very brief uh, sort of ending of the drama in Philadelphia. So let's let's set things up for ourselves. Um, the everyone who's left in Philadelphia signs the Constitution, uh, and then what?
1: And then it has to go to the Confederation Congress uh, for uh, their consideration to sending to the states, and there's a a good deal of political intrigue and, and drama once the document is unveiled, because of course uh, the, um, the framers of the Constitution had met in absolute secrecy in Philadelphia all summer, and what they produced was not what they had been charged with. They had been charged to uh, revise the Articles of Confederation, and instead they had designed a, a radically new, um, uh, very surprising uh, government. And so it had to go through the existing government, the uh, Confederation Congress, where many people were shocked and some were mortified, and then it had to go into the states for uh, a sanction or what we call ratification.
0: So just to um, refresh our listeners' memories, uh, the, the artic- under the articles, there was a unicameral legislature, uh, which That's is both a, a legislature and an executive, correct? Right. Uh, it right. was d- It could not uh, tax directly. It was dependent upon uh, funds from the states. Correct. And
1: Uh, there was no central judiciary. Uh, There was no uh, fixed seat of government. Uh, There was no um, executive um head of the government no no executive separate executive office as you pointed out the executive and the legislature were were of a piece and um they were they served uh, members of the congress served annual uh served one-year terms and they were strictly term limited so everything about the design of the constitution structurally in terms of terms um Was a was a radical departure from what most Mm -hmm. people knew not only in the confederation government, but within their states as well
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Why uh, the focus on Virginia? Why was Virginia so important in 1787?
1: So Virginia was one of two or three states that everyone understood Had to support the Constitution regardless of who else did. I mean technically only nine states had to ratify in order for the Constitution to become law. But in point of fact, everyone in the United States understood that if Massachusetts, which had been the seat of political radicalism in the revolution, uh, somehow decided not to um, embrace the Constitution, that that would have been a crippling blow. New York would have been very problematic because of its um, um, location and also the uh, central the economic power that uh, New York held. But but by far the most important state to sign on uh, was the state of Virginia. And there are multiple reasons why that's the case. Virginia was the largest geographically um, state in the United States at the time. It was the most populous. About one in five, one in six Americans called Virginia home at that time. And then uh, there was the not inconsiderable weight of of recent history I mean the author of the uh, Declaration of Independence of the Virginia Declaration of Rights which had been the model for the Declaration of Independence uh, and the head of the Continental Army were all Virginians and there was a great deal of belief that George Washington would be uh, chosen the first president and that went a long way in soothing people's anxieties about you know, this distant, centralized government that was being created with a a powerful um, executive um, uh, in the office of the presidency. And if Virginia had not ratified, then George Washington could not have become the first president because he would have not been in a state Mm -hmm. that was part of the United States. And so for all those reasons, there was a a great deal of interest in what was, what unfolded in Virginia between uh, late September of 1787 and the summer of 1788.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Let's uh, do a brief uh, dramatis persona of uh, some of these people. Um, We've already mentioned Washington, Washington, uh, Mm -hmm. but we often fail to think of the old man as a politician, Uh, but as you make clear and as uh, uh, Ed Larson has made clear recently and people are starting to realize, he was actually a consummate politician and was a politician for longer than he was a general, really, if you add up all the years of his uh, serving in office. Uh, Absolutely. what's, What's Washington like as a politician?
1: So I think the military role he played shaped his um, philosophy toward government and his zeal for the Constitution, he saw firsthand the direful consequences of too much decentralization, the inability of the confederation government to tax and therefore fund the military cause. Uh, he saw the sort of social uh, chaos uh, that was a consequence of people losing faith in uh, the fledgling Articles of, of Confederation, um, and. You know, he was quite a formidable person. I mean, he uh, wore his power very gingerly, of course, and one of the reasons why we admire and celebrate Washington was his willingness to always lay down power uh, if it served the greater good. But he was also, I I think, a very canny politician and uh, very zealous for the Constitution and used every tool within his power to persuade people that the country would be all right under the constitution and in fact as you know he he wrote to several friends he was skeptical or skittish about going public with it early on but he wrote several friends that he thought the the republic would collapse say, for mm-hmm. the constitution
0: he um is also i think perhaps the, mes- the best informed man in the republic um since he gets letters from everyone and letter newspapers from everyone he was an, a newspaper sure. addict um <clears throat> yes. and so and 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 god knows uh hundreds if not thousands of sermons are also sent to him and and those are also an indication Mm -hmm. of popular feeling
1: yeah Uh, i think that's right yeah um, he uh he was a great consumer of um and a savvy consumer of of media at the time mm
0: -hmm. uh james madison of course
1: of course uh so james madison was the principal architect of the design that eventually led to the constitution he was not without some criticism of the compromises that were made in Philadelphia to the design he had um, originally proposed, but he rightly deserves to be known as the father of the Constitution, and he was the most formidable, uh, learned um, advocate for ratification. He, he of course, was a Virginian. He doesn't have the... um, what compelling personality uh that washington had he wasn't witty and uh, winsome the way that benjamin franklin was um but my goodness he was a central figure in the founding of the american republic because of the design of the constitution and a brilliant brilliant meticulous thinker he didn't lay one idea down until he weighed it from every angle Mm -hmm. and only then did he Pick up the next thing. And so there's a ruthlessness and a relentlessness to his logic that the critics of the Constitution uh, often found overwhelming. Although Virginia was also home to some of the most um, skillful and committed critics, opponents uh, to the Constitution.
0: Uh, we should. We'll get to those in just a sec. But should we add anyone else to that Federalist side of the ledger, um, to the those supporting the constitutional government rather than the confederation government?
1: Well, in terms of the Virginia cohort, uh, John Marshall, uh, Mm -hmm. who had been a protege of George Washington, was a a strong supporter of the Constitution. Edmund Randolph, who was at the time the governor of the state of Virginia, had not signed in Philadelphia. I think he wanted to see which way the wind was blowing back home. Uh, But he became a very important um, advocate for ratification in the Virginia Uh, convention in in may of 1788 so also a very important federalist
0: and we'll get to him in just a minute because he has a a sort of fascinating uh role in all this um in the end i guess disliked by everybody um
1: (laughs) (laughs) but he stayed in office
0: (laughs) uh, he stayed in office yeah he was good Uh, on the other on the other side we have uh, a formidable lineup of first of all patrick henry
1: Yes, Uh, hard to imagine a a person with more influence in the state of Virginia. I mean, Washington was, of course, the most famous man in all of America and much revered within Virginia. Um, The reverence, I'm not sure Patrick Henry matched, but the influence, I think, Patrick Henry had greater influence in internal politics in the state of Virginia than did George Washington because he he had never really served one brief term, except for one brief term, uh, in any office except in Virginia. And so he wielded tremendous power there and uh, was uh, adamant about the perils of the constitution how it undermined good republican government that it destroyed the sovereignty uh of uh, his beloved state of virginia and that uh, it would be the beginning of the end of um of the american republic if it were supported so he he was um very fiery a brilliant uh, uh uh uh, at at rhetoric uh and very good at moving people politically within the state of virginia so he was very different from uh james madison but i think the two of them found in each other sort of a polar opposite in it but also a a pretty equal match different Mm -hmm. talents um put to different ends uh that led to a, a, i thought it was a fascinating collision of ideas and personalities and uh and then uh close behind henry um mm-hmm. and influence would have been george mason
0: yes go ahead george mason
1: so mason uh was also um, uh lifelong devoted to especially virginia politics but he was the author of the virginia declaration of rights which as i mentioned earlier became the model for uh, the Declaration of Independence, and the model for state bills of rights um, in in many places in, uh, um, in 1775 to 1776, culminating in the uh, Congress's Declaration of Independence. Uh, he was one of the lead figures in writing the Virginia Constitution. He was uh, celebrated in the state of Virginia as a great constitutional thinker. Uh, he was not um, an easy man he was very 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 forthright uh, I you know I, I got to know these men pretty well in reading their writings and studying their lives and I in a way I liked George Mason the best because everyone knew where they stood with him at all times <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he, he was not uh, politically savvy, but he was, um, you know, relentlessly uh, forthright in his views. And he he shared uh, not the same objections always as Patrick Henry, but he shared a uh, fierce rejection of the Constitution and fears about what it would mean for Virginia, what it would mean for Republican government. Hmm.
0: And uh, finally, on the, tri- on the triumvirate of the um, supporters of the Confederation uh, in Virginia would be Richard Henry Lee.
1: Yes, Richard Henry Lee, who was in the Confederation Congress when the Constitution came from Philadelphia into New York. Uh, uh, Richard Henry Lee is a a fascinating character. Of course, he's uh, descended from the uh, famous Lee family of Virginia. He had the opportunity to be a a representative in the Philadelphia Convention, but he had declined um, appeals to do that because he thought it was – inappropriate for someone to serve in the Confederation Congress and also to participate in the Philadelphia Convention because ultimately you would be the judge of your own actions. And he Mm -hmm. thought that was inappropriate. Of course, lots of other men went ahead and did that, including uh, James Madison, Mm -hmm. a sitting member of Congress who basically led the conversations in Philadelphia. And so Richard Henry Lee was uh, contemptuous of the conduct of people in philadelphia as well as the document that they produced and um and he he was a quick study in the political force of the federalist and worked very hard to try and undermine ratification uh, to stand against the creation of the centralized government under the constitution and then he was the first senator (coughs) after virginia had ratified and the constitution became law so he he continued that fight into the early constitutional period in the U.S. Congress, the U.S. Senate, I should say.
0: Is, is there anyone else we should mention? Uh, that those are, you know, those are names that uh, lots of people might even know. Uh, should we add anybody that's still? Um... Like Edmund Pendleton to this, um, who's Well, very Edmund much a,
1: Pendleton was there. Uh, you know, pretty much all of the leading figures in Virginia politics at the time, um, with the, with the exception of Washington. The convention. Yeah. With the except, absolutely. Thank you for that. With the exception of Washington, who uh, knew that he would likely be the president if it passed, and decided that it would be um, unseemly to be lobbying for not, not unlike Richard Henry Lee, that you don't go around lobbying for something that's going to produce that kind of personal power and, and renown for you. But he, but he, he, he worked behind the scenes from Mount Vernon. I mean, he corresponded uh, basically every other day or so with, uh, with James Madison, but, but everyone else is there. Edmund Pendleton, George Wythe, uh, Grayson, um, uh, Harrison, I mean, that, like if you conjure up a name of a prominent yeah. uh, Virginia politician from the uh, Revolutionary Era, he most likely was in Richmond in May of yeah. 1788.
0: So um, let's begin with the end of the, of the Constitution, follow a vague, uh, roughly your schema. Um, okay. Okay. Almost immediately, uh, George Mason is writing to Richard Henry Lee, um actually yeah. immediately the night of the night of the of the signing, I think. Um yeah. describing the constitution and all the problems with it. So that's that, right. So so really this whole struggle begins immediately, within minutes or even hours.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, the eighteenth century is another world, uh, from ours that communication was not instantaneous I mean no no information traveled faster than a horse um, but they began the campaign almost instantly as as, uh, as you noted uh, from the time they walked out of uh, the hall in Philadelphia both the supporters of the Constitution and the critics so they're writing letters uh, they're writing pieces that will eventually appear in the newspapers they're writing pamphlets uh, all to sway the opinions in the Congress, the opinions in their state legislatures, and ultimately the opinions of voters who would decide who went to a ratification convention and, uh, and by extension, how he would vote.
0: What, um, what are some of the ways that people began to discuss the Constitution? Uh, in, in October, was it in October when it became generally known?
1: <laughs> so, yes, uh, so there was, um, a lot of hyperbolic language, and the further things went along, the more inflamed people got. So the supporters of the Constitution praised it as a panacea, as the most brilliant design of government that had ever been. Um, You know, touched off by the hands of men uh, as uh, providentially destined as the ultimate and only salvation of Republican government in the United States and people on the other side. Uh, critics of the Constitution, uh, people skeptical about it, insisted that it was the beginning of the end of republican government in the United States. That it would have uh, diabolical, highly corruptive, corrosive uh, consequences, and that you know it was perhaps a conspiracy to mm-hmm. destroy representative government. And so the you know both sides said, if we don't win, the republic will quickly turn to civil war, and your wives will be raped and your sons will be sent off to war and, you know, every indignity will be heaped upon you, a world without end. And so it was very inflamed and very intense because both sides thought the stakes couldn't possibly get any higher.
0: Well, in in some ways they weren't, they couldn't actually. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. uh, The, it was, they had basically political society was at stake. Uh, I was struck, I was (laughs) struck that uh, there are town meetings about the constitution. Um, You mentioned the political club of Danville Which is in uh, Kentucky Kentucky is then part of Virginia It meets what for three months every week To discuss the Constitution
1: That's right So you know part of what went on uh, That fall and winter And into the spring and summer of the next year is fairly reminiscent of our You know kind of vitriolic polarized politics of today But another part to me, was profoundly different, and that is that people took words and ideas very seriously. Yeah. Uh, they they rigorously interrogated uh, the phrases and clauses within the Constitution and thought through methodically, uh, collectively what the meanings of those words and phrases would be. They gathered in coffee houses and taverns and around their dinner tables and uh, in uh, in town meetings. Uh, the Danville example is the most um, weighty, I think, uh, mm-hmm. that at least that I discovered in Virginia. But if you can imagine people spending 10 months debating and talking about a design of government and, and what design would best fulfill their principles – and best honor, uh, you know, their recent revolutionary history, it's uh, it's quite a thing to behold.
0: Mm-hmm. It is. And uh, it, this is coinciding with this, the uh, a post-revolutionary burst, uh, we'll get to other revolutionary changes, but one revolutionary change is the number of newspapers, uh, yeah. there are many more <laughs> weekly newspapers. About how many, and how do those fall out, How are, how are they used by the proponents and opponents of the Constitution?
1: So there were 13 weekly newspapers just in Virginia uh, in 1787-88. There were scores being published uh, in small towns, uh, in uh, larger cities throughout North America. And part of that is because um, the values of the, the creators of the American Republic held that for a republic to work the citizens had to be not only virtuous, that is, put the common good above their own self-interest, but they had to be informed. And so <clears throat> the newspapers and the mail, I mean, I always tell my students, there's a reason why Benjamin Franklin was the most, the first postmaster. But like, that was a very important uh, position for a very important man to hold, because getting information reliably <clears throat> and uh to to people across the United States was a vital uh significance to their ideas about um mm-hmm. about republican government and so the newspapers uh are thriving in this period and they're highly partisan most of the <clears throat> excuse me most of the newspapers were published in cities, uh, especially in port cities, like a lot coming out of Philadelphia, out of Boston, and New York. And then the writings in those pi- newspapers are picked up, uh, kind of like people use the AP today or the Washington Post or the mm-hmm. New York Times. And, you know, like the St. Louis Post-Dispatch often uh, reprints things out of the Post or the Times. So people in further out regions would pick up um Reportage and pamphlets, advocacy pieces in the seaboard press um, publications. And they were highly partisan and highly uh, skewed toward the federalist side because people in cities, um, uh, commercial elites tended to support. Uh, the centralized government under the Constitution more than people in uh, in rural areas tended to do, or at least with, with more mm-hmm. zeal. So the Anti-Federalists held their own in the debates, but it was despite having um, fewer newspaper editors and printers on their side.
0: So how did they get their word out then? How did the Anti-Federalists, um, how did they... Um, Argue and propagandize in the wider public sphere when they're when newspapers are nine to one against.
1: Well, they, there were newspapers that printed anti-federalist pieces, and even federalist-leaning newspapers printed anti-federalist pieces because, of course, they they wanted to sell newspapers. Uh-huh. Uh, they also printed uh, pamphlets. Uh, And they had uh, printers um, print and distribute pamphlets. And then a lot of uh, information flowing through personal letters. So Richard Henry Lee uh, is coordinating really a national letter writing network uh, among anti federalists in Boston, uh, in New York, where he was, in Virginia, a few people in North Carolina. So he's trying, uh, uh, Philadelphia, uh, throughout Pennsylvania. He's trying to connect people. Uh, who share his um, sensibilities about the Constitution in ways similar to, you know, what George Washington is doing uh, with the Federalist and, uh, and James Madison and Alexander Hamilton. There, there are more men doing this on the Federalist side and fewer doing it on the anti federalist but it's the same kind of thing, like sharing through personal networks public information.
0: Uh, but can you explain how pamphlets work uh, I, I i how many pamphlets were published uh for and against the constitution uh, w- there's a number for that isn't there
1: uh, there is and I, boy i won't be able to say i can't that remember it, it would, it's it scores and scores and scores it's um, i think it's uh, in the pamphlets. hundreds yeah that that sounds right
0: do you have but a do you have a widely... number? yeah go, oh, go ahead no no please go ahead
1: well, some are very widely circulated at the time, um, some less widely circulated, and some have a great weight in our um, political discourse and, and our history today that didn't have as much weight at the time. And I guess I'm thinking about the Federalist Papers in yeah. particular, which uh, we read as sort of dispassionate um treatises on the constitution but were actually written as advocacy pieces to try and sway new york and then they got picked up and and circulated in other places but not early enough in virginia to really shape the outcome uh of their convention so that's an example of a pamphlet that had more influence over time maybe than it did uh at the time
0: what um were and so there were there many pamphlets being written by Virginians to Virginians.
1: Yeah, you know that that was going on as well. Uh, here again the anti-federalists have a disadvantage. The federalists had a clear agenda and a uniform agenda and that was to ratify the constitution. So, you know, they had to argue in favor of certain parts of the constitution and they had to argue against certain critiques and that varied. Based on you know what they were writing, but they still there was a uniformity and a consistency to what they were arguing, which is the Constitution must be ratified. The future of the Republic depends on it, and this is our best, only path forward. Mm -hmm. And the Anti-Federalists didn't necessarily cohere around uh, their critiques of the Constitution, or even cohere around the path forward. I mean, they, some anti-federalists were opposed to certain parts of the Constitution and wanted to be changed, so they thought, well, there could be a second convention uh, and we could remedy these problems. Others uh, critiqued the overall structure of the Constitution and thought it irremediable. Um, and even among the ones who, you know, thought it could be fixed or um could be changed there was disagreement about what could be changed what should be changed and how those changes might be affected and so they're more decentralized on in in multiple ways they don't have the same network of printers on their side they don't have a uniform and consistent message um and there's there's sometimes infighting between them and and that was uh That was a set of facts that the Federalists saw and seized on uh, in in their campaign.
0: So as uh, the winter of uh, 87-88 goes on, um, rumor, rumor, counter-rumor, innuendo... Mm Facts, arguments sometimes um, are spreading back and forth across the states. Uh, People are watching New York. They're watching Virginia. And then comes a very important, in the spring, a very important election, which uh, usually we drop out of the constitutional history. Um, Some of these states had to elect people to go to their own state constitutional convention to ratify uh, the Constitution. And Virginia is one of those states that elects people separately. So you begin a chapter with Washington going to vote. Uh, Washington going to vote for his people in Alexandria who will go to Richmond. And all that's this right. has this has been very carefully set up by opposite sides. How do they work this out? How do they how do they politic for people oh, to right. stand for election?
1: So each state had to create a convention to vote yes or no on the Constitution. I mean, that that was the charge sent from, um, from New York via Philadelphia, is a yes or no vote. So how to choose representatives? How many? Uh, where they would meet? When they would meet? This was all up for debate, and strong advocates on either side played politics with that. So in Virginia, um, both the Federalist and Anti-Federalist within the Virginia legislature thought that it was to their advantage not to have uh, a quick convention. So Philadelphia has one of the quickest ones. Uh, oh, Pennsylvania has one of the quickest ones. Um, and there was a lot of turmoil in uh, Pennsylvania as a consequence of that. The Federalists thought that in Virginia that if they waited until the spring that other states would have ratified, and it would force Virginia's hand, or that they would then have to decide, are we going to stay in the Union or not, um, so that the, the weight of time would work to their favor. Anti-federalists thought uh, that, if, that if they waited until the spring or early summer, that that would work to their advantage. And how they reasoned was if people had time to really study the Constitution, and to really think about the implications of the power structure that was implicit in the design of the Constitution, that they would reject it. And so for completely contradictory reasons, strong Federalists and strong anti federalists in the Virginia legislature set their convention uh, for May of 1788. And they decided that they would use the regular uh, county court days and that each county would get two representatives and then the cities would get uh, a couple of cities would get representatives as well but they would use their regular court days to choose those people and so it turned out that in Virginia they have rolling elections all month so some counties are meeting the first week in March and some are meeting the last week in March and of course the the weekly newspapers are publishing the returns on this and so March is just Chaos in Virginia—a chaos of misinformation and political intrigue—trying to figure out who's, uh, you know, who's going to be in uh, in Richmond, and then they also bring up a, a a question that we still contend with today, and and that is, what is your representative supposed to do? Is your representative supposed to represent the will of the majority of people who voted for at that time? It was only him, or is your representative supposed to go and deliberate and weigh in his own mind based on his own judgment what's in the best interest of everyone, mm-hmm. and so bound up in all the political intrigue uh, and the misinformation about the march elections was this deep philosophical um, you know point of contention about what what, what is a representative supposed to do
0: mm. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we've got the um, the, uh, the the Federalists are often using the names of those who support the Constitution, chiefly Washington and Franklin, as armor yeah. uh, to defend yeah. the Constitution. So rhetorically, uh, anti the, those against the Constitution um, have to find a way of dealing with that, and so they begin to chip away at the famous names, uh, not quite Washington, yeah. but sort of. Um, you give this as another example of the, the ways in which the revolution has impacted, particularly the deferential culture of Virginia.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the the most persuasive, I think, um, uh, answer to, okay, so what the Federalist said was Washington and Franklin and most of the leading figures of the revolutionary movement, but but certainly the two most important, revered, men in america washington and franklin are enthusiastically in support of this and who basically who are you to criticize their motivations and their design washington in particular having sacrificed at least in the public imagination having sacrificed more than any other person in america for the uh revolutionary cause like is is he really likely to be a conspirator or duped by conspirators uh, mm-hmm. in the design of a uh, of a dangerous government? The response to that, or the most effective um, and moving response, was, um, "I can't substitute another man's judgment for my own. My duty as a citizen is to weigh this for myself, and of course I I listen to." learned and uh and smart and experienced people but my responsibility as a citizen calls me to weigh this for myself Mm -hmm.
0: so and and they did have to
1: be i was just going to say they they did have to be i mean there was there was room to criticize most every man in america except for washington and it and it it did get very sticky for the anti-federalists to try and uh, and criticize any of Washington's um, motivations and, and certainly any of his character. And so they 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 chose a different kind of a political move than taking him on directly. Those
0: criticisms would come in another, another five years um, before those <laughs> yes, personal that's
1: right. things would get heated
0: enough, <laughs> um, which gives you some idea of how heated things were in 92, 93, and 94. Um so, yeah,
1: it's interesting to think about how close Madison and Washington were in yes. eighty-seven, eighty-eight. I mean, lockstep, close friends, uh, um, you know, fearsome allies, uh, totally uh, uh, dedicated to a shared vision. And then uh, Madison would be one of the architects of the opposition policy, um, and and one of the sharpest and earliest critics of of Washington. And I believe. Uh, after Washington finished his second term, there was a severing of his relationship with Madison. I don't believe they ever spoke again.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's, well, that's a subject for a separate conversation. But it it ruins, it does ruin his relationship with uh, both George Mason and um, and then later Madison. Um, Both of them seem to act as one-man think tanks um, for for Washington. Um, I
1: like the way you put that. Yeah, yeah.
0: But they... um, but, uh, no, they, they commit laisse majesté, and that's not, you can't do that to the old man. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
1: uh
0: He doesn't forget. Um, no, no. Uh, so, eventually, everyone gets to Richmond, and lo and behold, there actually is a, a, a building big enough to hold them all, um, mm-hmm. which is kind of a shock, considering that's a, a very new town um, yeah. in 1788. So, uh, the En- enigmatic. Um, Edmund Randolph is chairing things. Although you point out, uh, well, he's he's one of the people there. Edmund Pendleton is uh, elected chair. is a chair. To chair the, sorry, the chair. You point out that um, one of the things we should realize is that um, Randolph wasn't wishy-washy. Um, he re- reading about him, he reminded me of one German politician instead of another. Um, it's like he's like trying to nail jello to a tree. Um, yeah. Randolph is like that, but you also suggest that perhaps he's also a pragmatic moderate, and that this is an indication to us that there is really a very wide range of opinions on the Constitution, and we should realize that it's not just simply anti and pro. Do you want yeah. to speak about so, that briefly?
1: Uh, sure, sure. So the series that the book is in is called Witness to History, and um, it's with Johns Hopkins University Press, and they wanted a they want narrative. Studies of pivotal moments in american history heavily character driven that you get into the dialogue in sort of the drama um, uh, of of the story that you're telling and so I wanted readers to be able to decide for themselves um several issues in the book but but one of those is what to make of uh of randolph right so his his critics on really both sides, both the Federalist and the Anti Federalist, um, found him very wobbly. I mean, I like that nailing jello to the wall. He, Randolph's cousin said he was like a chameleon on an aspen. Always changing, <laughs> always quaking. Um, <laughs> and that's his cousin. <laughs> yes, that's his cousin. Uh so, you know, um this one take on Randolph that he's wobbly uh that he's you know seeing which way the wind will blow and trying to get behind the parade, and so that explains why in Philadelphia he's he won't sign the Constitution then months go on when he's back in Virginia and he won't tell anybody what he thinks and then he tells people what he thinks and he tries to monopolize a lot of the conversation uh, in um, in in Richmond to you know to a lot of people's chagrin and uh, and contempt so that's that's in there because I saw that in yeah. Randolph. But the other thing I saw in in Randolph and and some of his defenders wrote about him was that you know he's willing to listen to be persuaded, and things changed significantly between October of seventeen or September of seventeen eighty seven when the men in Philadelphia had to decide whether to sign on to the Constitution or not, and May of seventeen 88. And what Randolph said was, you know, the the point of changing this document has passed. And the only choice before Virginia now is, are we going to be in the United States or not? Are we going to undermine uh, the uh, relationship between the, the states and undermine the future of uh, of our country and Republican government or, or not? And so there are two ways of, of seeing him, that either he's Wobbly or he's a, um a moderate willing to change his mind, and so I, I hope that maybe different readers will think mm-hmm. different things uh, about him and you know, uh, Hopkins hopes it'll be adopted in undergraduate courses and maybe will be the source of some debate for uh for students or just mm-hmm. internal debate for other readers
0: um I don't want to steal everything away from the book, so uh <laughs> yeah let's just what what to your mind is the the high point of that debate in Richmond. Um, what's the what's the sort of central contest? Because there's lots of things going on.
1: Gosh, that's yeah,
0: a, a hard that's one. That's
1: a really tough question. Um, I guess one thing I'll say. I'm not, I'm not sure this is even the most important, but it's certainly an important one because um, Virginia was important in the story, and what role. Virginia would have? Like, would the sovereignty of Virginia be protected and preserved or would that yield ground to the need um, to have a, a united collection of states? And so where, how much authority and influence a state what would have been the most powerful state in the United States was willing to sacrifice for mm-hmm. the common good or the as the opponents of the uh, Constitution would have said how much they're willing to casually throw away in mm-hmm. service of a um, corrupt government um, that be, that became a central question uh, to be answered in Virginia and all of the men who were there uh, loved Virginia and thought of it as uh, as their home and wanted to do the right thing um, by their home. And they just fundamentally disagreed about what that might be. And then, of course, that, that question recurs, I guess, over time, um, as is the nature of, of the federal system, Uh well, how much sovereignty and authority are the states going to cede to the federal government, and how much are they going to retain? So, so that that I thought was a really important and pressing question in the minds of the delegates in Philadelphia, uh, in, uh, in Richmond.
0: Um, one thing that struck me uh, reading your book and and reading others' uh, takes on it is that. Um, Matt- public speaking, uh, but I I note uh, and reluctantly uh, uh, speaks publicly in order to get uh, appointed to the convention, uh, and yet I note that he spoke for two hours when he had to do so, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he also... Now I missed
1: the name. Who... who you, James, who
0: James Madison. James Ma- Madison. Ma- yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. When he
0: returns to Orange County from Congress, very reluctantly uh, campaigns for the position in the convention. But Mm -hmm. reluctantly, he says he's reluctant, but he speaks for two hours, and he also won uh, one of the most hardest-fought congressional elections almost in American history to eventually represent that district. Um, We won't get into that right now. Um, So Madison's actually a really good uh, practical politician, um, and he's probably a much better speaker than we give him credit for. Uh, And it's it's amazing... uh, Patrick Henry uh, once spent is it June 15th Spends 6 hours uh, in a speech. Yeah. But yeah. he he seems to be very disconnected. He never seems to really bring things together. Um it, uh, to, what do you what do you what do you make of that? I mean, you seem to agree that is this yeah. part of is this part of is in his own mind? He never unifies reasons for an anti-federalist cause. It's not just the anti-federalists are all divided. They all have different reasons, but even in Patrick Henry's mind, there is no unitary reason to be an anti-federalist or be against the constitution.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, that's, that's the problem that Henry uh, personally and the anti-federalists generally are struggling with. Like ultimately the question can be turned on them. So what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. because there was virtual consensus that the articles of confederation as they existed were were inadequate. Not and,
0: not um, not for Henry, I don't think. I mean he he's well, that might be part I mean, of the problem. I mean,
1: yeah, well but even Henry is willing to concede that there are that there need to be some changes made uh, uh to the articles. Um but you know Henry never in my reading of those speeches Henry's greatest strength was his uh worst shortcoming and that is he was a brilliant order but he didn't know when to stop and hmm. so you know he would he would have a an incredibly moving and affecting uh spot on critique and it would get buried in this just avalanche of of words and so I think people got overwhelmed by that and uh and exasperated by that and it and it weakened him, um, and he did not, ha- he, he was a brilliant speaker, but he didn't have the meticulous um, intellect, I guess, of, uh, of James Madison. So uh, someone once asked John Marshall who he thought was the, um, the best orator uh, of the age, and he said, well, if it means persuading other men, then it's James Madison. Hmm. which is interesting because, of course, Madison is so soft-spoken that sometimes people can't hear him. Uh, mm-hmm. He has to write everything out. He's, uh, he's kind of a sickly fellow and maybe hy- hypochondriacal, um, <laughs> but he he's not like on the surface a person you would think would be the most persuasive guy in the room. Mm-hmm. But he knew how to frame an argument, and he knew how to close an argument. And I think Henry was so... Stricken by what he thought lay ahead for the for Virginia and and for the country that he couldn't stop himself
0: mm-hmm. um, I Hope to give nothing away when I say that in the end um, The Constitution was approved a, a ratified 89, <laughs> 89 to 79 um, yes. In Virginia and uh, I, I think that rather than um, get into all the details of that uh, We should let people buy your book uh, okay. I'm just I, I'm curious. Uh, you had talked about the type of the, the series that you wrote this for in Johns Hopkins. Uh, am I right in saying that this is uh, unlike? Uh, have you written a narrative history of this kind, a uh, character-driven narrative history?
1: No, uh, no, I have yeah. not. So, uh,
0: what did I've... you learn about uh, being a historian and uh, and about uh, writing history by doing this?
1: Well, it was um, it was very challenging because we're trained to write um, you know as historians to announce the thesis and to uh, display the evidence to support that thesis and build it paragraph by paragraph by paragraph and so if you're writing a narrative you have to embed the interpretation and you have to foreground the action so you can't have too many you know like in the movies dun dun. dun. you can't have those too many Too many yeah. of those moments, because yeah. uh, you're stealing the discovery from the reader, mm-hmm. and so you you kind of you have to take a step back from do that uh, from doing that, and you also have to be willing to accept that the reader is going to take away from the book maybe something very different than you yourself saw in the story. I mean, if we write an interpretive um, uh, work of history, people still may take something away from it besides what we intended, but we've at least announced ourselves forcefully mm-hmm. uh, and consistently. Uh, but but there's a, I guess there's a democratization hmm. uh, to readership if you're writing narrative because you're not sure what the reader is going to see. And so, you know, I give the example of uh, of. Edmund Randolph, I also think it's possible to read the book and think um, the Virginians made the right decision, and it's possible to read the book and think, well, the Virginians made uh, the wrong decision, and maybe they should have held out for uh, changes to the the design of governments. Uh, And, you know, what happens after uh, ratification with the coming of the Bill of Rights, which we now seamlessly see as connected to the Constitution um, mm-hmm. that's its own really moving uh, dramatic highly contentious um, mm-hmm. story because it wasn't seamless to get from ratification to the uh, to the Bill of Rights most people don't know the, you know what we always celebrate is the First Amendment is yeah. it's only randomly first because two others failed in, uh, in ratification, <laughs> by or in are we... but, but as you said, that's a story for another time.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, my guest today has been Lori Glover. Uh, the book is The Fate of the Revolution, and I recommend that you go buy it at once. Lori, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation, and it, uh, it's great to be with you.
0: For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.